On this episode of China Unscripted, the Chinese Communist Party is gaining more and more power. They're on their way to becoming a global hegemon. Is the CCP's rise inevitable, or is there a way to stop their authoritarianism? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Kanejda. Joining us today is Anders Kaur. He's the publisher of the Journal of Political Risk and principal at Core Analytics. He's also the author of the new book, Concentration of Power, Institutionalization, Hierarchy, and Hegemony. Thanks for being here in, in person. Thank you. This is this is a treat. This this almost never happens post-COVID for us. Yeah, we'd like to think you came all the way to New York City just for this. I did. Absolutely. Oh, naturally. Of course. Naturally. <laughs> all right. So yeah, you get you had this great new book and um well well tell us a little bit about it. What is concentration of power? The idea here is it's a historical theory. Um, the If you look over thousands of years of history, back to the days when there were tribes and kingdoms, um, those tribes and kin- kingdoms tended to fight with each other or uh, unify in some way. Um, and over time, political units became bigger and bigger. Um, kingdoms became states, states became empires. Um, when the empires broke down, we got other large political unit systems, which we, which are now alliance blocks. So, if you look over time, there's a there's a gradual growth in the geographic size of states, empires, alliance systems in terms of their size. And so, this would include things like the Dutch East India Company. Yeah. Like, uh, it doesn't have to be a state-based thing. It can be like these enormous today, like these multinational corporations. Exactly. So. Things get bigger, power gets bigger, hierarchies get bigger, um, and not only do they get bigger geographically, but they get they control the individual to a greater and greater degree over time. Um, so people, you know, back in the days when uh, you know life was nasty, brutish, and short, as Hobbes says, um, uh, people were actually more free. But now we're more secure, but we're less free. So what are some ways uh, these hierarchies control people or are gaining more control over people? They um, gain control by incentive. I mean, one of the ways in which they gain control is by incentives and disincentives. So whoever has power uses the power that they already have to maintain that power through incentives and disincentives of the individuals that are within the within the unit. And so when conditions would be ripe for uh, the breakup of their hierarchies, um, they don't break up because they have the power to offer incentives to people to stay within the hierarchy. However, when the conditions are right for growing their hierarchies bigger or growing their territories bigger, they're able to do that. So guns don't kill people. Hierarchies kill people. Exactly. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but I'm thinking of like the EU, right? So the yeah. EU is essentially, it's not a state, but it's this alliance that's more than just a military or diplomatic alliance. It's a it's a currency alliance. So so the EU controls, for example, monetary policy, and none of the individual countries get to control it except the UK. But we know how that went, right? Uh, and so like that's a type of power structure. And so like what kind of control does that have over people's lives, for example? I would argue it has an increasing level of control over people's lives, and that the EU is a proto-state. It's a state that's in formation um, that in 100 years or 200 years or maybe 10 or 20 years, it could be like a state. Already Macron, for example, President Macron of France is 
arguing that it should we should have the EU should have an army, um, its own army. Um, the, because of COVID, they've put in the, for the first time they've put in a, uh, a EU level debt um, uh, that is transcending the national level debt. Um, so the EU is taking on its own debt. Essentially, it kind of sounds like uh, the goal is like the Star Trek kind of, you know, United Federation of Earth. It's it's just this, well, one world government. Yeah, it may not be the goal, but it's the end. It's the likely end. If you follow logically what's going on, we are trending, I would argue, towards a single global government of some sort. Is it going to be the EU? Probably not, because they're not very tough, really. I would say it's going to be Either uh, the CCP is going to lead it because they're the the ones that are the toughest and they're they're trying to lead it, um, or it could be um, the current system that we have, which is pretty decent in terms of an international system of uh, sovereign states that's diverse that are that, that's trending towards democracy. I mean that was the that was the ideal of the United Nations when it was first uh, formulated uh, by Churchill and FDR as the in the Atlantic Charter in 1942. So is the United Nations kind of one of these things that you're talking about, which is like a larger concentration of power than these sovereign states? Yeah, it could be. Especially, it could be a, a force to maintain the independence of sovereign states, which I think is how it was envisioned. But I think that the way in which the CCP is trying to suborn it uh, for its own purposes uh, is to use it to try to promote its own power. So they're trying to turn it into a global government, whereas it was really originally meant to protect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with how the CCP is kind of using UN rules to benefit itself, but how is it trying to turn it into a global government? Well, I think that, you know, they, for example, with the uh, information system, um, they are trying to promote laws that will, um, that through the UN, that support uh, censorship, basically allow autocratic governments around the world to censor people. They um, use their own massive economic power to uh, get countries in the UN General Assembly to vote the way China wants them to vote. So they're essentially able to start controlling the UN. If they're able to control the UN and no one really opposes them, we're in trouble. It, it reminds me of how they just got their second guy you know, put in charge of Interpol. Like, you know, the first Chinese oh, head of the Interpol. Guy, yeah, I, I know you're worried, Chris, but don't worry because the UN has the Human Rights Council that's going to protect everyone. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh, China runs that. But... Um, yeah, you know, China just buys off enough countries and they get the votes they need for whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, it, it, it reminds me a lot of like, uh, I don't know, like physics or matter, like the idea of like power and how it concentrates. Mm. Like, you know, you know, matter, if matter was just all diffuse, there would be no planets, nothing could exist. So it is good that, you know, it, like things coalesce, they condense. But eventually, if it gets too condensed, you get a black hole. Exactly. It's very much like gravity. Yeah. Power tends to gravitate to itself mm -hmm. because it's it is because people with a lot of power try to get more power and they have the power to get more power. People without power have no power to get more power. So 
they lose out. And they so get the power to make a difference. <laughs> we well, wish. <laughs> I mean, sometimes empires fall, like mm-hmm. the British Empire, the yeah. Roman Empire. So how does that fit into the concentration of power? So my argument is that empires tend to fall when there are other bigger, stronger empires that defeat them. So if you look throughout history, the say the British Empire uh, was defeated in in a way because of you know it was there was an internal war within Europe, um, and it was defeated that way. Uh, the U.S. was so powerful after that that it imposed its world order, you know, through the UN, its vision of world order. We often don't think about it that way because we're Americans, but it did impose a belief system uh, about promoting democracy, promoting human rights globally, promoting the sovereign state, territorial integrity. These are all the concepts that are in the Atlantic Charter that ended up in the UN system. Um, the Roman Empire, when it broke down, uh, was defeated by the Mongol hordes who were coming across. That was another empire system. Um, you know, So usually when these empires break down, there was something else that is some other power center, some other hierarchy that's defeating them. Um, and we don't, we, we, we more see, we more focus on the breakdown than we do on the expansion. So the, you know, there's a, a lot of people think there's a, a kind of a cycle of growth of empires, breakdown, growth, breakdown. I argue that there is a growth and breakdown, but it's more of a, a one step backwards, two steps forward kind of thing where you get more concentration over time. It reminds me of the beginning of uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. The empire long united must divide, long divided must unite. Yeah. Seems to be the cycle. Uh, Well, so from a certain point of view, it seems like a concentration of power is not inherently bad, but after a point, it can become toxic. So what really is, uh, when does that shift happen? Well, I mean, I would say that it's, it it is pretty bad. I mean, I would say in general it's bad, and I think that we, you know, today uh, believe that our system is good because we've been propagandized into believing that. Right? I haven't but... been propagandized. It's just the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. I think we have lost freedoms over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've lost a lot of diversity. I mean, native populations have been destroyed, right? I can't what even duel people anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, like, what... That was a freedom that you lost? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but like, what, what what are some freedoms that we've lost in America over the last- Dueling. Say, 100... <laughs> it used to be a presidential thing. A president yeah. could duel. Who, which president? Hamilton? He, he was not he a was president. A, he was a treasury secretary. <laughs> Wasn't he? He he never. He, he was, he was no. so important though that there's a really great hit musical about him. Yeah. Well, anyways, dueling. So, but besides <laughs> besides dueling, which is obviously the most important American institution that has fallen, uh, what are some freedoms that we've lost? As okay, for example, one of the things that's happened in the U.S. is you know, and you, and you talk about this is like the federal government has taken on more and more responsibility as state governments have taken have gotten less and less sovereignty right so w- what are some costs that we faced here yeah so that that's a very good point uh the executive is taking power from congress constantly it's every year every 5 years we've got a, more, a stronger president uh than we used to um um and i think it's important to think about the native populations and what kind of freedoms they had that we don't have today. Um, what kind of, you know, with 
the growth of technology and surveillance. Um, you know, there's there are positive things to it. I can walk in, in New York City and not feel scared of crime. Right? Yeah, it's changing. But in the 70s, you know, you you it was dangerous to walk at night in Manhattan. Um, but there's so it's a trade-off, you know, you get you do get more security over time, but you lose you lose some of the freedom to be walking down the street without being surveilled, for example. Sure, but I I trade all my freedom for a little bit of temporary security. I don't see a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that saying, you know, those who would give up freedom for security, this part has been redacted. <laughs> that's the original, huh? As far as I know, I've been propaganda. Uh, <laughs> that's what my propaganda books tell me. <laughs> well, so then it sounds like what we have is, is uh, a hierarchy. You were saying like the U.S.-led... UN world order that was trying to preserve the sovereignty of individual countries, which sounds like the opposite idea of, uh, you know, the concentration of power. That'd be like if individual states in the United States got more powerful instead of the executive. But now that is being rammed up against what China is doing. And it seems like, according to you, like the historical trends are leading to a China or Communist Party dominated world. That's how I see it. I see it. I think that the uh, sort of the autocratic model is the is the model that's been preferred throughout history. Mm -hmm. um, and so the sort of democratic model or reserving power to the states or reserving power to nations or, for example, when when you have laws that go through new laws that temporarily empower the president, but they have a sunset clause. So there's an automatic reversion to a less concentrated state. Those are very positive. So we do have people trying to preserve the freedoms, even as there's this trend. Um, but I think that what happens is that sometimes those freedoms can be preserved for a, you know do dozens of years or decades or centuries. But that over time, if you really look at thousands of years of histories, there is an unmistakable trend towards the concentration of power. And why is that? You're saying it's just because people want more power? People want more power and there are mechanisms that they use and that can be used fairly easily uh, by the powerful, uh, such as hierarchies, such as incentives and disincentives, um, to empower power more so that power is as a gravitational force, um, kind of in the way that physics. How do they use hierarchies for this then? Hierarchies institutionalize the power system. So... Uh, if you didn't have hierarchies, people would really be much more equal. We look at hierarchies. I argue that hierarchies are, are a form of informational power. I divide power into three sections, economic, uh, political, or military, and um, informational. And hierarchies, if you look at an org chart at work, you know, uh, if they change the hierarchy, they say, okay, we're promoting Jimmy one level up. And they have a PowerPoint slide, and it's a it's a piece of information that you look at, and you say, okay, now I have to go to Jimmy to get my direction, and he has power over me. It's a form of information, but it's a form of power. One thing that I found interesting in your book was you talk about communism as a form uh, that has actually more hierarchy. Uh, when most people think of it, if, if you ask the person on the street about communism, they'd be like, oh, well, it's about people being more equal, right? Yeah, all communists are equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> but but it, can you explain why communism, you say it has more hierarchy? I would argue it has more hierarchy because there's, it's, it, the, the way that communism comes out in the end is a dictatorship of the proletariat. 
And they like to deny it. They like to say, oh, Marx really, you know, when he said dictatorship of the proletariat, he really meant democracy. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, not really. Up. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> China, you know, Xi Jinping is talking about, you know, how China has the best democracy. And he's essentially trying to gaslight the whole world into thinking like, oh, I guess China does have democracy, but of course that's stupid. Uh, but in terms of like the levels of hierarchy, right? Like, so you're saying there's more, like more levels of hierarchy in China, or is it that the hierarchy has more control over people? Uh, maybe both. I'd, I'd, and that the concentration of power in China is such that, I mean, the the, the idea of communism is that they accept this concept of a dictatorship of the proletariat. So it's easy for them to accept the Xi Jinping when he walks in the room and says, I'm the new dictator. I'm the emperor for life. And we have a, our dictatorial authoritarian system is better than democracy because democracy is just chaos. Ray Dalio says, you know, we're a nation of individuals. China has a government. You know, it has a real authoritarian government. It has a system. There's a man who understands the <laughs> flow of history. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely want to give him my money to invest in China for me. Uh, you don't even have to. Just the just power of history will condense your money to him. Well, I mean, that's kind of true. Like if I have a pension fund or something, that's he's right. probably that is true. That there's <laughs> yeah. like there is very little that you as an individual can do about how your money is institutionally invested. It's psycho history. It's psycho from foundation. Okay, Asimov. <laughs> okay, look it up. Well, so the interesting thing about China and the Chinese Communist Party is. Well, after Mao, it seemed like it was a system that wasn't really benefiting any individual. It was just sort of the perpetuation of the party itself. Xi Jinping has kind of changed that by possibly becoming the next Mao. But there is the sense that, like, the Communist Party itself is just sort of this behemoth that keeps lumbering forward. And now decades of planning is coming to fruition and it is beginning to assert its control over the global system. Uh, is that inevitable? Is that something that can be stopped? I think it can be stopped. I think, we, but I think we have to be much more active in our attempts to stop it. Um, and part of the, I think, the message of the book is that um, because history is trending in that direction, we need to take it more ser seriously than we are. So yes, they're causing a genocide, so therefore we need to take it more seriously. Yes, they've. You know, they're jailing people. They've got the, the Fallon going, taking their organs. All of these reasons are we need to take it more seriously. So this book is kind of one more, add one more reason to the basket for why we need to take the CCP seriously. Well, if history tends towards authoritarianism, no matter what, what, what really can be done is just to have another stronger power in the world, like, you know, reassert U.S. dominance, or are we just trading one horrible authoritarian power for another? I think the the U, the way the U.S. and Britain really tried to organize the U.N. system um, was quite wise in terms of maintaining the sovereignty of different states, maintaining their territorial integrity. They really tried to maintain the independence of, of the system. Um, and it was a stasis that came in in 1942. So they were looking at the distribution of states in 1942. And they were breaking, not only that, but they were breaking up the empires, the British, the French. They were breaking all those empires up and turning them into sovereign states, many, many sovereign states. So it was a, it was actually a move in the right direction in terms of freedom, in terms of sovereignty. 
um, and it was wise. Uh, so I think it's a far preferable system, obviously, than uh, a CCP-dominated world, um, which is not going to do that. I think if you look at what the CCP is doing within their own borders in terms of trying to homogenize the population, uh, get rid of uh, linguistic diversity, religious diversity, any religion really, um, other than the Marxism, which is a religion as well. Um, you know, you you really see the danger of what they could do on a global level. Well, I mean, we already see that. I mean, you look at satellite countries, like take uh, Cambodia for instance, right? Uh, Hun Sen, the president of Cambodia, is a well, he's a dictator essentially, right? And he has increasingly taken Chinese money, Chinese investment. Uh, there's a lot of Chinese construction, whether it's you know casinos and hotels, uh, which has brought with it the Chinese triads. It's brought with it the human trafficking. It's brought with it like all these problems that come with it. But also, Hun Sen is getting a lot of money, right? So like you see that kind of thing. And not just, like, Cambodia is just one example. And there's dozens of examples, you know, to a greater or lesser degree that are of these countries that are run by essentially dictators that are sort of being brought into this CCP hierarchy on a global scale. Is this something, is this the hierarchical skimming that you're talking about in your book? Yeah. So, so one of the functions of, I mean, I absolutely agree with you about Cambodia. And one of the functions of the way in which power works is um, power can be skimmed from the top and moved to the bottom only to be re-aggregated uh, into a yet higher level. So sometimes what you see is you'll see, uh, for example, some some dukes or something or uh, bishops who get more power. A king is taken, the power of a king is taken and distributed lower down to dukes and bishops or peasants or whatnot, right? But then the person who did that skimming and that pumping down pumps it right back up to himself. And so there's this kind of two-level, two-step process to well, the concentration. What's a historical example of that? Because I don't, I don't quite understand. In France, you had, you would have, you would have this sort of event. Or in, um, in uh, England, sometimes you would have these events where the kings would sort of uh, bring power down, only to bring it back up. Like to Magna Carta was a sort of sending power down. It was sending power down, and it was, you know, what happened. I think from the Middle Ages to the more contemporary or modern eras is that you did have a disaggregation of power among kings, among nobles, um, and that power was aggregated in the state building process, right? Um, so in the 17th, 18th centuries, those powers that were, those nobles that were much more independent, they had their own castles, they had their own military forces, all of those were aggregated. Right? And we think of that as a good thing. We think of, oh, well, the serfdom was removed, slavery was removed. But also there was a process where you had a, a more homogenous political system um, that was more controlled by a single individual at the top. So the single individual would be the king or queen or like someone in the city of London, for example. Could be the king or queen, could be someone in the city, could be a president, you know. Um, and in a way, this is sometimes it's good, right? Sometimes it's good to take power away from the from the nobles and to have an elected system 
um, where you where you elect a president. But at the same time, sometimes that president uh, can become Hitler, and he's got suddenly he's got massive control of the entire country of Germany, and he can invade other countries on a continental level, where before uh, that unified German state existed, Hitler never could have existed. So it's kind, it's it you know there are pluses and minuses to sending your power to a president uh, that controls huge armies, huge countries. So I guess you could uh, make a comparison to the United States. You mentioned earlier how the executive branch is getting more and more powerful. On the surface, it seems like the power has been skimmed off and given to individual Americans who are supposed to be able to vote for the president. But, you know, who who is the president? Well, it needs to be somebody who is backed by one of the two massive political parties that have their own interests. And then that person has tremendous power, but that's still just an extension of whatever party he's a part of. And really those two parties work together a lot because they're the power of the country. And so that's how, even though Americans have this, on the surface, this power, it just creates more power at the top. Is that? Uh... That is it. And it is a bit worrisome. I mean, the, the, the corporations are... Uh, you know, they have a lot of control over our politicians. Our politicians depend on the corporations for um, campaign donations. Um, those corporations are making a lot of money in China. So whoever wins, Democrat or Republican, there's this huge corporate influence uh, over our president, over especially over the Treasury Secretary, to maintain that trade. There's, there's something like $600 billion worth of trade annually with China. All of that money has someone behind it that has political influence. There's about $2.3 trillion of U.S. investments through institutional investors, including state pension funds in China. All of that money has someone behind it trying to protect it from any kind of instability in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, so we've put all of our power up into our leadership. And supposedly we have control over that leadership through our votes. But, you know, the, the big corporations, the big money interests have at least as much power as we do as voters. That's in part why there's not much governmental resistance uh, to the growth of China's power. We just don't see today the government doing what, what it should do, what it must do to stop the, CC, the, the growth of CCP power. And you think that's a function of like how, for example, the political parties and the election process work that like certain... Certain candidates get power, but those candidates are already sort of selected by people who have power. Yeah. And so China is this other hierarchy that comes and sort of skims power out of the United States. Like the corporations definitely seem like a very powerful force, but they see the China market and suddenly China becomes this much larger hierarchy that is absorbing, or I guess getting more the concentration of power put to it. That's yeah, I mean, I, I think one reason why Xi Jinping appears so arrogant from an average American perspective is he likely sees himself as in charge of the corporations because the corporations are, you know, uh, salivating to get into the Chinese market. Um, and, the, and he thinks the corporations are in charge of Biden. So he's two levels above Biden. Or any you know, U.S. president. Any U.S. president, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the corporations thing because I was thinking about what's just happened with uh, the EU and Lithuania and 
you know, essentially the, the CCP trying to put pressure on Lithuania using European corporations and saying, well, if you want to do business in China, you can't do business with Lithuania. Yeah. If we don't, do, if we don't counter that by saying to our corporations, it's illegal for you to cave to the CCP, then we're clearly giving up our power to China. We're basically giving up. You know, it's a very, it's a very good uh, indicator. It's like a canary, Lithuania is like a canary in the coal mine. If Lithuania goes down because of Chinese influence on corporations, then the rest of us can basically throw in our hats. So what's the most powerful force on earth? Love. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> So how does love conquer the world? <laughs> yeah, love, love. We need that. We need more of that. We need more, uh, we need more love, diversity, um, egalitarianism, ethics, morals, people who don't go for power, people who go for, um, but at the same time, we need people that you need power to defeat power. So we need a strong U.S. military, for example, uh, if we're going to protect ourselves against against China. And the, the military it, there is the most hierarchical, powerful institution we have. Well, it was also interesting what you were saying about how like the US government needs to make it illegal for these companies to do business with China. But the idea of like the US government telling businesses, private corporations what to do, you know, I think that rankles a lot of people like, oh, that's 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 taking power. The U.S. The government's not supposed to do that. We we have to do that during wartime. I mean, when we fought Hitler, uh, the president got a lot more power over the economy. It's not something we like, but we're forced into it when we're facing a powerful enemy like like Hitler or like Xi Jinping or Mao or whatnot. Would you say that what America needs is some kind of uh, powerful supreme leader? Mm, like, no, like, no, I wouldn't say, <laughs> I wouldn't well, say well, that. <laughs> well, well, let's, you know, devil's advocate. Okay. What if, you know, I were like a supreme leader? Like how, how would I, as someone who has absolutely no power at all, how would I tap into the concentration of power and become the supreme leader? Yeah. With the exception of Chris, who's clearly a benign dictator, um, it would be, you know, that would be fine. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think Chris ever claimed to be a, a benign dictator. No, but... I've been very open <laughs> about my willingness to kill. Uh, but I mean, I, I think the, the the interesting thing here would be then how does Chris go from hosting a couple of small YouTube shows to becoming supreme leader? I mean, I'm not sure this is supposed to be like a how-to guide. Is it supposed to be like how you concentrate yeah. power? And there, there's a, that's there's, the book you should write. There's a, yeah, right. There's there's a little bit of that in there. I've thought about it, but it's definitely not. Yeah, it's definitely not really a how-to guide. Well, so is it possible, like you say, like, you know, there's these historical trends, hierarchies of power. Is Is there a way that this can be planned out that like it's not just random chaos of like, oh, like, you know, who would have thought 100 years ago that China would be this dominant force. Uh, is it all just happenstance or can it be something that is actually like there's agency behind it? Because if there is yeah. that, that is that is a way to say that like, oh, you know, the United States or freedom or democracy would be able to beat the Chinese Communist Party. I think there's a bit of both. I mean, I think Mao's uh, philosophy of political power grows from the barrel of a gun has been very effective for that. 
And I think it's something that we as, you know, we in the democracies and, and liberals, we don't want that. Small, lower, lower L, lowercase L. Um, we don't want that. We don't believe in that. We we want freedom. We want free markets. We want free freedom of speech. We want you know. We love freedom. This is what we. This is what it's all about. Right. In, Power in grows from the barrel of all of us having our own guns. Yeah. Actually, that's true. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> those. Uh, yeah. Those amendments are there to help contain power when necessary. Right. Um, but. I mean, part of it is that when faced with a real danger like uh, the CCP, on some level, we do need to accept leadership um, because the U.S. is the only government in the world that can actually defeat the CCP. We still have a Navy that can defeat uh, the Chinese Navy. Um, you know, that will not last forever. Now, we have a currency that can defeat the Chinese renminbi, but only for so long. Yeah. So we need to be very wise today in how we use the power that we have because it's dwindling. It won't be here in 10 or 20 years. Do you think that essentially by being small L liberals, we've accidentally encouraged the growth of an authoritarian power like the CCP? Because, you know, what I learned in college, things like, well, you know, there shouldn't be like a dominant power like the US? Like, you know, why does the America have to be a world police? Why, like, isn't it better? Like the, the whole like end of history thing, right? Like, aren't we all going to become liberal democracies? That was the hope. That was the hope that in the 90s, we felt that, you know, it, you know, Fukuyama said, we are at the end of history. We're all democracies. We're going to be democracies. Uh, it just wasn't the case, you know? Um, and if we ab abdicate, our responsibility as a world policeman uh, in favor of democracy, in favor of diversity um, and freedom, uh, another world policeman will take over that vacuum of power. And that's exactly what the CCP is doing. So you're saying we should be the world policeman, but one that believes in freedom. Yeah. I mean, once we once we get rid of the uh, worst dictators, the one that's that can actually threaten to take over the world, uh, then, then you can back off again and become the hands-off, you know, community policeman. But community. then there's going to be another authoritarian power that develops. If they, if one develops, then you again have mm. to step up. So you have to have a, a process and a method and a plan for stepping up when necessary, and then backing off to allow freedom again uh, when you can't. Well, I guess that's supposedly the idea of the checks and balances of the United States. That uh, something like that would be possible, but there are enough checks and balances that then you aren't stuck with like, okay, well now this is just the new dictator. But of course, once, you know, someone gets a little bit of power temporarily, they typically want to hang on to it. That's why we love our four and eight year term limits, right? We, <laughs> they got to go after eight years. Well, I mean, but that, but that came about because of FDR, right? And he had four terms by, you know, the end of his third term, like he was so powerful he was controlling all sorts of institutions in a very direct way. He was taking on a lot more power for the um, federal government. But then there, there was a big shift right, where Congress is like, okay, like neither party wants that to be a thing again because we see how dangerous it is. So that actually, I mean, there was a constitutional amendment passed, which is a pretty big deal to actually diffuse that, that power, right? 
and now to try to make the president a little weaker. Well, I guess that's the idea of that power concentrates. As soon as there is somebody who gets power, more and more power will come to that person or institution I mean, or whatever. They will and gather it. They, and yeah, by hook or by crook. And so I guess that's why we have a system where like before that can happen, it gets broken up. Well, when it becomes so powerful, is there a way to diffuse power? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that your example is an excellent one. We have to institutionalize. So institutions can be used uh, to promote the concentration of power, um, you know, or they can be used if they're hierarchical or if they're non-hierarchical institutions that ensure that you that you you know damp down the hierarchy as it grows, you know, then you, it's a very positive institution that you hold on to and that you protect. And that's what we have in our constitution is a system for deconcentrating power through checks and balances, through term limits, et cetera. We do not have that system in place yet on an international level in dealing with China. China is breaking all the rules. It's figuring out, you know, it's, they're, they're being very, very smart about how they aggregate power. So we essentially have to think of new systems. We really have to think out of the box. And we need to be quite active and tough in enforcing some of the some of the systems that we put in place after World War II, because what Xi Jinping is doing is not that different in many ways from what Hitler tried to do. And the rules that came after Hitler in terms of territorial integrity, um, diversity of religion, protections of religion, human rights, uh, promotion of democracy, all of those things are perfect for containing the power of China. But we have to put them in place. We have to enforce them against China. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up Hitler because this podcast is going on the internet where everything has to have a reference to Hitler. <laughs> yeah. But like, what are some, like, what are some things that uh, people don't typically think of? And it's like, people think Nazis and Nazis had to take over territory. Nazis, you know, killed 6 million Jews uh, and some other groups, although in smaller numbers. But like, what are some things that China is doing that are, uh, that are comparable to the Nazis, like in other ways that we maybe don't think about? Uh, well, I think ter in terms of territorial uh, aggrandizement, um, they really are trying to do many things um, in terms of South China Sea, taking over the South China Sea. South China Sea is as big as India, okay? They're trying to grab Taiwan. They're grabbing Taiwan based on a racist ethnic justification. They're Chinese, therefore, therefore they belong to us. Um, that's exactly what Hitler did in terms of trying to grab uh, German populations that were outside the, the borders of Germany. It's what Putin is doing in terms of trying to grab Russian populations in Georgia and Ukraine. Right? It's profoundly racist. It's profoundly illiberal. Um, and it's very, very dangerous, obviously. Um, so, I mean, I think, and you know, it goes on and on. Uh, the viewers, I think, have been educated by you guys very well on on China's territory grabs in India, in Bhutan, um, you know, they've, they grab territory in Vietnam. People don't know that still they have some of Vietnamese actual territory. In, in terms of the genocide, um, by the UN definition of, the, of genocide, there's arguably a triple genocide going on in China, not only against the Uyghurs, but against Falun Gong and against uh, the Tibetans, uh, because they're trying to wipe out religions. If you have a religion and a government is trying to wipe out that religion. That's technically a genocide by the UN, by the UN definition. Right. So, like, 
why does, I mean, to me, this is kind of an obvious thing, but like, why does the CCP want to wipe out religions? Like, why do they want to wipe out the sort of Muslim religion? Why do they want to wipe out Falun Gong, which is a, a kind of religion or spiritual thing? Why do they want to wipe out Tibetan Buddhism? Like, what is their advantage to that? Because it really pisses people off. I think it's, they're power hungry. I mean, they're just profoundly power hungry and they want a unified ideology. They see these religions as threats to the CCP. They see these religions as threats to communism. Marx was always against religion of any type. And I think it, you know, largely it was because it was a, it was a form of power, it was a form of hierarchy that was not a communist hierarchy and which therefore he and Lenin didn't have control. Okay, so it's like the Catholic Church, for example, is a power, its own sort of powerful hierarchy. And if you're Catholic and you live in, say, the you know the United States or in Latin America or any place where it's popular, right? Like, you are going to be loyal, perhaps, to your to the church before you're loyal to the government or to the president, right? So that's essentially the threat, so that the Communist Party sees. Well, I, th- I think this is an interesting point that. Um... Speaking of uh, the Vatican, China obviously has a lot of power over the Vatican, as we've seen. And, you know, we talk about these hierarchies of power, and it seems like forces that seem so dominant, uh, you know, whether you're talking about religious institutions like the Vatican or, you know, these gigantic American mega corporations, all of these hierarchies seem so powerful. And yet China was able to absorb them all. What What is it about the Chinese Communist Party systems or actions that uh, allows them to draw in these other seemingly incredibly powerful hierarchies? Uh, I, I think one of the biggest things is that they they know that they have a lot of power because they can turn on and off these hierarchy, these individuals or groups access to the Chinese market. Um, so for example, the Vatican wants access to the Christians, the Catholics who live in China. The only way it can get access to these Christians is by an agreement with the CCP authorities. Um, and if you look in history, actually, it's often the way states are built and empowered is they have access to something. They have access to a uh, their gatekeepers of something. So, for example, in Argentina, um, the the way the state was built in Argentina was the the leading powers had control of a big river. Um, and a lot of trade was on that river. And so what they did was they, you know, they taxed that and they, through that tax, they empowered themselves and they got control of the hinterland and created the state of Argentina. So it's a, it's a process that, um, you know, that happens in many, many countries and many hierarchies around the world. And, and, and it is also something we need to think about in terms of currently we, because the U.S. Navy has more power than the Chinese Navy right now on a global level, where we have a blue water Navy that can actually control global shipping. China doesn't have that, right? We are not actually using the power that we have because we allow Chinese shipping anywhere globally to just operate. So China is using this freedom that they have to grow and grow their economy. And then once that economy and their military actually can beat the US Navy and the Chinese start taking over the waters, the, the global trade, they, can, they could actually tax global trade 
use it to even build their military further. And that's where you really see global hegemony picking up for the Chinese. I think that's a big reason they're so desperate for control over the South China Sea. Like $5 trillion of shipping go through there if they can control that. I mean, what can the U.S. do about it, though? I'm just thinking, like, like, imagine China controlling in, like, 50 years, controlling all the world's oceans. Like, that's what they would want, right? South China Sea is just the first step. It would be an ocean of despair. Is Oh, okay. (laughs) They're Uh, not... (laughs) Go ahead, Shelley. (laughs) I I was just going to ask, like, what can the U.S. do? Like, should the U.S. actually be stopping Chinese ships, like... Shipping container. I think we. I think we should be very careful about allowing China to continue its unmitigated access to free markets globally, um, because they're using those free markets. Before China joined the WTO, it was a very small economy relative to the United States and Europe. Only because it was able to join the WTO, only because it promised to go in a liberal direction, to democratize, to follow human rights, was it even allowed into the WTO? Now it's clear that China is not you know, not following human rights, not democratizing. They're going the opposite direction. So they should be kicked out of the WTO. What's so you're saying the Chinese Communist Party lied? <laughs> huh. Well, if they are kicked out of the WTO, what practical effect does that have now? Because they needed it, right? Do they still need the WTO? I think they would help to kick them out. There, there's, there's. I also think it would help to kick them out of the UN. I think we could kick them out of the UN. Um, there are things we could do. For example, uh, you know, you there are you, the UN organizations. There are four main cities where most of the UN organizations are: Rome, Paris, uh, New York City, and Geneva. That's four democracies. Those democracies could get together. They could say, we're not going to give any more visas to Chinese diplomats because they're committing genocide. And we don't give visas to diplomats who commit genocide. Suddenly, there's no more Chinese diplomats at any of the UN organizations. And you you vote to kick them out. I mean, like you know. would just start its own club, right? Just like they have their own democracy that's better. They'll have their own UN but It'll the, be way better. And but, their own Olympics. Their own Olympics. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, they, they really they really could and probably would do something like that. It's just... And they would get all the Belt and Road companies, countries, in their UN. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, then, then, you, then you do what they're doing. So what China's doing is they say, if you don't do what we want, we don't give you access to our market. The US and Europe can also do that. We can say, if... Uh, you know, a particular African or South American or Asian country doesn't, you know, uh, refuse to recognize China and doesn't recognize Taiwan, we're actually going to limit their access to our markets. Currently, we give all of the African countries free access to our markets just out of the goodness of our hearts. So what does that leave an African country to do? Because they're told by us, you're automatically getting access to our markets. They're told by Beijing, you only get access to our markets if you de-recognize Taiwan. So what does the rational actor do? They de-recognize Taiwan so they can have access to all of us. We have so much power, but we're not using it. That's the problem. Why do you think that is? I think we're, I think China's gotten this, you know, China's stolen a march on us and, and we're a bit slow to recognize how power hungry they are. And we're slow to recognize how power hungry they are because 
they're influencing our corporations, our corporations are influencing our politicians. And so, our media. And our media. This is this is something Shelley kind of brought up earlier, which I think ties into this, the idea that, you know, we were told it's the end of history and there was this, there was a sense of like, oh, you know, America is, you know, they're the, they're the, that's, we're the bad ones. We should focus on like, you know, we shouldn't be the world police. And then that gives rise to something like- Well, I mean, I think that, that, that it's like, there shouldn't be a world police. Yeah, but the result is there is like, almost like this swell of anti-Americanism within America. And then that prevents, well, like everything like you're saying, like how can there be a united front against China when internally in the United States there's so much opposition to just the country itself? Right. But I mean, like this has been a gradual um, sort of changing thought process. Like in World War II or like say in, in in 1946, right after the war, Americans were like, America is great. Like, look at what we've done to really help all these countries, you know, avoid this horrible dictatorship, right? And then gradually, and you kind of have these influences like uh, Howard's in the people's history kind of thing that have like basically used exaggerations and some outright lies to just flip this narrative to, to make it as if, you know, America's this evil imperialist. And then that gets taught, you know, and, and we've now had really kind of two generations, right? And we have people coming up through college in the 60s who then became university professors who taught the next generation who are now the university professors. Who are the politicians and the who media. Are now the, right. Moguls. So like in, you go to you know school for like international relations, but you're taught by professors who have been influenced by this very, I mean, I, I would argue it's it's kind of Marxist as well. Right, this sort of people's history type viewpoint, which has really kind of warped what America is and doesn't recognize the kind of values that this country stands for, at least, you know, is supposed to stand for or or what the founding fathers wanted to stand for. I mean, I, history is complicated, right? I, but but like when you've when you've changed the mentality of an entire generation. If you asked a, you know, a bunch of 20 something year olds today in America, right? Like a lot of them will, will believe that America is really the, the worst imperialist. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. After, I mean, after the Vietnam war, I think there was a massive leftward shift in academia. And then you add to this, uh, the growing, um, you know, Chinese students that come into academia and all of academia, you know, universities are corporations and they want Chinese students. They get massive tuitions from Chinese students. And in the 90s and 2000s, and, and especially now, you know, these guys, these big universities can't piss off the Chinese or they lose students, you know. And so you have this, uh, you know, they, they're very, very slow to recognize the genocide where they should have been the first ones because they're the ones who have all the time to study and they know Chinese. And yeah. I mean, like the the sort of uh, divest in South Africa during the apartheid came out of universities, right? It was this this movement to, to not invest in South Africa until they ended apartheid. And that was one of the big factors in actually bringing down that sort of racist system. That could happen with China, but it's not. 
South Africans didn't have a lot of money to spend on tuition in the US, but the Chinese do. They also didn't have an entire propaganda system that would call a boycott against China, you know, Asian hate, right? Anti-Asian hate or something like that, well, we, like they're using now. Yeah, because yeah. we saw with the, uh, it began the Trump administration, like barring Chinese university students who study at, you know, military universities in China coming to the U.S. and studying, you know, sensitive military or in fields that have military application. And that was... Unfortunately, this was also something that was kind of parroted in U.S. media, but the idea that this was racist and also that it was a ban on, like, all Chinese students or just... There was a lot of bad information going around about that. I mean, they've been very good at weaponizing, like, over... Was it last weekend? Or, I mean, I guess when this comes out, it'll be a couple weeks ago, that in London there was a group of kind of United Front people, Chinese people, who were had a stop uh, Asian hate rally. Mm. Uh, and then they were there to essentially cause trouble with these Hong Kong protesters who were having a separate protest. So there was this clash in the streets of London. And then the CCP can use this as propaganda about how, uh, you know, like the West, like Hong Kong protesters are being like weaponized by the West to in a racist way against Chinese people. It's Yeah. So, so Hong Kongers are an extension of white supremacy? Uh, you know, they're Chinese people, except when they're the black hands of the Western imperialists. Something, okay, something. so they're, they're, they're white something. It was a very weird thing to, to see happen, but it happened. Right. Yeah. I, th I think the, the, like, it's funny, but not like in a, in a hilarious way. But like, I remember when we were in Hong Kong, how... Like everybody in Hong Kong was against the CCP. Well, not everybody, but a huge swath. And it was all across the political spectrum, right? You had the like the Hong Kong socialists who hated the CCP. And you had the people that we'd consider on the right who hated the CCP and everybody in between, right? And it wasn't like some divisive thing. It wasn't like some small group. It wasn't Hong Kong supremacists or something like that. So it's just the whole thing is just being so hilariously mischaracterized, but it's not not funny. You just said it wasn't hilarious, and then you said it was hilarious. Yeah, that was the funny part. Yeah. Ah, yeah. No, this is this is why I'm on the show, so I can make jokes that aren't funny, and then Chris and Shelley look like they're very funny. You're the straight man. No, I'm I'm the guy who makes bad jokes. I'm the straight man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you are actually the straight man. So then what am I? Uh, the comedian, whoever's you're, the opposite of the straight man. You're the charming, charismatic host on his way to becoming supreme leader. I have access to things that people want, <laughs> like great guests. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the problem is you're not limiting access to that. Oh, that's right. Stop watching right now. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think what you should do is like, for example, Anders, now that you're on our show, if anyone else from any other media wants to interview you, they have to pay a tax that's it. to us. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, We can control the rivers of information. There you go. Well, I mean, we've talked about different types of power. <laughs> I'm uh, trying to okay. talk about oceans of despair and rivers of information. I'm, I, I, we're very metaphorical. I feel yeah, like, like now it's going to become a Billy Joel song. Is that what's happening? <laughs> I'm not familiar enough with Billy. Oh, there's the he's got this song called River of Dreams or something. Uh -huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
we talked about economic power and and kind of political power and information. Is there a power that you would say is more powerful out of the different types of power? I I are, what I argue is that um, three types of power uh, have different levels of frequency. So uh, military political power is fairly infrequent, um, but it's very strong when it's used. Uh, economic power is a bit more frequent and a bit less powerful. And informational power, we see it all the time. We're inundated with information, but each time we're inundated with a piece of information, it doesn't actually have that much power. So they kind of average out, uh, you know, totally non-scientific, but it is a theory. I was just saying we're in the wrong kind of power. They're all important. informational power. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, <laughs> so, so, so what? So what you're saying is what Chris needs is economic power, which we're not getting from YouTube, uh, and, military. and military power. Well, it could be political power. It doesn't have to be military power. Political yeah. power, yeah. But that comes from a barrel of a gun. Hmm. Yeah. Which is military power. Which is military power. But it's also interesting because that is also um, the gun was new technology at one point. Uh, technology really can be a powerful disruptor of, you know, previous hierarchies because it controls, it changes the access to whatever is important. Uh, and that, I think, is why the space race is such a, the new space race is such an important thing because that's going, like, we have no what idea. What new space race? There's, a, the, obviously, there's a space race with the U.S. and China. You mean the one where China's doing all this stuff and we're doing, like, almost nothing? Uh, <laughs> I'd like to tell you a story, Shelley, about a tortoise and a hare. Okay. <laughs> now, one would think a tortoise has no chance against a hare okay. in was, a race. Was the tortoise moving, though, <laughs> in this race? <laughs> That's that's my question. So, Andrew, let's, uh, let's, you talk about ratcheting in this book. Tell us about ratcheting. So ra the ratchet is uh, where once a, once a power gets power, uh, it doesn't tend to lose it. And the reason is because it can use that power to maintain its power. Like when Shelley put me on the spot for the rabbit and the, the, the turtle thing, I just turned that's it. Took power and- You took power and moved did. along. Yeah. yeah, I see. I understand that on an intuitive level. <laughs> oh, well, so what's an example of that besides what I just did? Uh, and maybe how it relates to China. Examples of that. Okay, so actually a, a recent example of that is in Greenland, actually. Denmark um, controls Greenland or its foreign policy. Um, and part of the way that it does that is it uh, provides- uh, economic subsidies uh, to Greenland and to the population of Greenland, which is quite small. So whenever Greenland thinks about breaking off and becoming totally independent of Denmark, um, you know, it thinks, where are we going to get these subsidies from? No one's going to give us the subsidies. Let's just stay with Denmark. Let's allow Denmark to control our foreign and defense policy. Can I suggest America buy Greenland? <laughs> I'm the first one to come up with that. <laughs> Yeah, the Trumpian idea. Only beautiful blonde men can have such audacious <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> Although now I just realized you compared me physically to Trump. So. <laughs> uh, at, at any rate, but but no, that's an, so. What you're saying is that Denmark's power over Greenland is basically that it's giving Greenland all this money 
in the neighborhood of what it's a couple billion a year or something like that, right? Something, yeah. So it's not it's not an enormous amount, but it is for Greenland, which only has a very small population. Right. Uh so then Greenland becomes dependent. It can't it can't break away. Right. Yeah. So conditions, I mean, in the past, uh, when Greenland was taken over, um, you know, conditions were ripe for expansion. Uh, and you you did have military expansion of Denmark over Greenland. Um, and and colonial expansion. Um, when conditions are now ripe for, because of nationalism, for breaking off and becoming independent, um, because Denmark has had control over Greenland for, you know, hundreds of years, um, they have the economic power to maintain Greenland within their defense and foreign policy union. And so they regularly give them these you know, handouts and subsidies. So that's the ratchet. Like it, it basically stops it from backsliding, backsliding towards independence. Exactly. Well, so maybe to uh, bring everything together and kind of um, wrap things up, the, in the United States, still uh, power is relatively decentralized. It's it's still a lot about the American people, and as far as uh, combating China. For the U.S. to do anything, that's going to require the American citizenry to sort of understand the risk and make take action. Uh, so for people watching, what can they do? How do we get more people to really become aware of what's at stake, which is China becoming the world's police, essentially? Well, first of all, watch China Unscripted and China Uncensored. Would you recommend any episodes with particular <laughs> guests? All of the episodes. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, Cleo Pascal's oh. episode. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you've got to get educated. You've got to understand the way in which China uses its power, the way in which it's uh, seeking global hegemony. I mean, this is now recognized on both sides of the aisle uh, with Roche Doshi's uh, article, uh, book, actually, about um, China seeking, you know, he's looked at all of the Chinese documents and proven that they're seeking global hegemony. Uh, that's not a question mark for anyone anymore. Um, you know, now the question is, how are they getting it? What are the mechanisms? Um, you know, the public needs to be educated on this, which is why you guys are doing such a great job and, you know, why China Uncensored and Unscripted is so important, uh, not only to, you know, the current situation with China, but really the rest of global history. The rest of global history? Because if people don't aren't educated about what China is doing today, they could easily become a global hegemon. Mm. So mm -hmm. what you're doing is actually a pivot. It's actually pushing in the right direction in terms of decentralization of power, democratization, uh, at a pivot point in history. So, so it's quite important. So what you're saying is the entire future of freedom in the world rests on our shoulders. Exactly. Okay. So we are the gatekeepers to the future. You should tax that. I uh, am. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Well, I mean, awareness is good. It's a good first start. Where do we go from there? Because I feel like, you know, right now, the, the U.S. government, we don't even want to use the words great power competition, right? We Or we don't want to say, uh, like, we're just like, oh, we're an economic competitor or something like that. Right. We have to get more comfortable because the U.S. government is the only entity out there. It's the only hierarchy out there that can defeat the CCP at this point, um, or even contain the CCP. We have to get more comfortable with being more active. We have to be more comfortable with think concepts like 
being a global po policeman for good and not for evil, you know, because you have a choice between two policemen, you know, do you want the good one or do you want the bad one? America, world police. I should make a movie. Watch Chris. the movie. Watch, watch the movie. All right. Well, Anders, thank you so much for joining us in person. Uh, for anyone watching again, the book is The Concentration of Power. It's a very interesting read. Check it out. Um, put a we link. can put links below. Optimum yes. Publishing International. It's a great publisher, and they do some other very important work, too. Yes, I would say many of their books are optimum. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We are the gatekeepers of the future. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for watching. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jung. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And we'll talk to you next time.